You are listening to When Policy Meets Practice from JFF, where we delve into the practical realities of education and workforce development policy with practitioners on JFF's Policy Leadership Trust. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of When Policy Meets Practice a new podcast from JFF that features community college leaders talking about education and workforce development policies and what they mean for students. I'm Paul Fain, a longtime higher education journalist now focused on connections between education and work. I'll be the podcast host. Our nation faces an unprecedented challenge in helping millions of people whose educations, work, and lives were disrupted by the pandemic. For example, community college enrollments are down sharply, more than 11% this spring, and we know the impacts of the COVID-19 crisis have been particularly severe for the lower-income people who community colleges specialize in serving, and particularly for Black, Latino, and Indigenous populations. For this episode, I interviewed Madeline Pumariega, president of Miami-Dade College and the former chancellor of the Florida College System. President Pumariega talked about how Miami-Dade tapped state funding during the pandemic to help create rapid response credentials so students could retool for jobs with academic programs of up to 18 weeks in length. I call it here on our team, how do we create the Uber of education that's personalized, that's on demand, and has uh, multiple entry and exit points that create that seamless beginning to end. I also interviewed Marsha Ballinger, president of Ohio's Lorain County Community College. Lorain County also expanded its short-term credential offerings in the last year, and President Ballinger told me how the college used federal stimulus funds to help students cover their financial needs during the COVID crisis. We know this pre-pandemic that when students get to a point where there's a barrier, especially getting to that finish line, it's about a $500 barrier that it's either utilities or it's a car issue or transportation or childcare or what have you. In each episode of this podcast, I'll be joined by experts from JFF to help make sense of what we heard during the interviews. Speaking with me this week was Lexi Barrett, who leads JFF's state and federal policy work. Lexi and I were joined by Dave Altstadt, who directs JFF's Policy Leadership Trust. All right, we've got a lot of ground to cover in this episode, so let's get to the conversation. I am here with President Pumiriega of uh, Miami-Dade College. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been an interesting year and change for you and, and everybody else. I wonder if you could give us just a little snapshot of where things stand at Miami-Dade, how you all have made it through, what sort of struggles you're seeing among students and folks in the community as we all start working on reconnection. Miami-Dade College, like our community colleges across the country, saw some of the impact of the pandemic on enrollment. I think we're not far from what the nation saw. I think we're recovering quite well. We probably saw about a six and a half percent spring decline enrollment. But in the summer, we're already at just even at this point and expect that we should be slightly up by the end of the summer. What I do think that the pandemic you know, really uh, demonstrated, especially in higher education, where we oftentimes think that we are not as fast or as nimble is we really did did demonstrate that we were nimble in being able to shift immediately to online platforms to provide virtual support services that included mental health to our students. And I think as we come out of this, what the pandemic did do was accelerate the future of work. 
so much of whether it was chambers or others were looking at 2025, 2030, the future of work that was accelerated from automation to the adopting of technology and innovation. And I think that colleges like Miami-Dade College are well positioned to be able to be nimble enough to bring in those programs, which will be the programs that will help communities recover post the pandemic. It goes without saying that Miami-Dade is known for being nimble and entrepreneurial and creative when it comes to serving students. I wonder, given that personality of an institution Were there aspects of what you did that made you be able to move quickly to serve students? And if that might be having a role in your enrollment projections, which are quite good, given the the pain that the students that you serve have experienced. I think there are things that we were already doing, and I think it's true for institutions recovering faster. For example, investment in technologies, you know, from legacy systems to ERP learning management systems capable of being able to pivot and create an online platform for students. What we were doing around teaching and learning and professional development among faculty and staff, and so many of the programs that we were beginning to pivot where students could access them in a virtual environment, whether it was tutoring programs or whether it was blended academic programs. I think all of those things already in motion for colleges like Miami-Dade College made that pivot much faster, probably more seamless. In the process, what Florida did in terms of just creating policy from the Florida Department of Education made funds available for rapid response credentials. And so it also helped the college position itself that we were being funded and helping get student scholarships and stipends for programs that we could retool and upskill our students within 18 weeks. That's helped tremendously. And now with everything happening in Miami-Dade County around technology, leveraging what was already a path of stacking credentials, micro-credentials, badging, that helps, I think, be nimble enough and put the course offerings that students who are coming back to level up, if you will, so they can re-engage in the workforce or our current students looking to pivot into an in-demand field, what it does is give us that platform to accelerate our impact. Speaking philosophically, or as specifically as you want, in terms of the rapid response credentials, I mean, I know, again, that Miami's doing a lot with IT right now. How important is it, or how possible is it, to keep that connection with a student who earns that short-term credential to make sure that they get the chance to advance in higher ed and earn eventually a degree or frankly advance within their employer to keep getting that the education and training they need to get promoted. Seamless would be, I think, a, a word, right? Seamless and they could see the return on investment. If they pick up that industry certification, which today I think digital apprenticeships come to us as industry certifications, if you will, whether it's Google, Amazon Web Services, that they can see this seamless stackable credential. I earned this industry certification. It leads to a college credit certificate, which leads to an associate's, which leads to a bachelor's, and every step of the way looks at pay increases so that they can see that clear return on investment for where if they invest in their education, put forth the time and the effort, they can see the payoff. And I think in reverse to that, seeing businesses 
also investing in their employees, that being at the table and contributing to the talent pipeline and ecosystem creates really a trifecta, a win for the college, a win for the business, and a win for the student. And in turn, the economy wins because talent is really that economic driver. States and communities that get talent right are going to accelerate through the recovery and thrive economically. Absolutely. You know, speaking about businesses, I wonder how different it feels to you to to think about the commitment from the businesses around Miami to working with Miami-Dade. It, you know, from where I sit, it really does feel like, particularly because of the diversity, equity, inclusion imperative, that there is something different going on, that they're at the table in a way with more seriousness than they were before. But it's hard to generalize about the entire economy. Are you feeling that on the ground there? I am. I think that it's really, you know, if you think about the movement of the jobs of the future being those middle skill jobs, I think that the business leaders know that where their growth, there's a couple of sweet spots and they know that they need to grow their talent and their workforce in these middle skills jobs. And that colleges like Miami-Dade are well positioned to help them do that. I think that they also know the importance of a diverse workforce and bringing in that workforce helps not only their business, but helps the community. Everyone wins, if you will. And when they can partner like colleges, like Miami-Dade College, I think it advances, again, their impact of what their own corporate goals are, which is one, drive innovation and excellence, have a talented workforce, and ensure that their business reflects the community that they serve. So let's talk about your previous stomping grounds at Tallahassee. You mentioned the support for the rapid response credentials. What sort of policy momentum are you seeing from the state that can make the most impact amid this recovery to get workers back on track? While I was chancellor of our Florida college system, we really were working on aligning our degrees to jobs, making sure through all of our performance incentive programs that if a student was earning that workforce degree, there was a job waiting and there was a high paying wage waiting as well. I think this year, the House Speaker, Speaker Sprouse, his priority was really modernizing Florida's workforce system. So with the passing of House Bill 1507, what you've seen is really accelerating that modernization of the entire workforce ecosystem for Florida. It begins to look at our workforce boards connected to our colleges and universities, to industry partners, and making sure that we're doing everything in terms of the policy to accelerate talent in Florida, to ensure that every community has a talented workforce and that our credentials, those post-secondary credentials, whether it's a college credit certificate, an industry certification are of value and that they have a seamless transition to our degree programs that lead to jobs and lead to jobs of the future. And so I think that that's where you see policy accelerating practice. It was already a practice happening in pockets of the state. This legislation really accelerates that across the entire state and across systems that sometimes are siloed, ensuring that the silos come down. It's a more integrated system and that it puts workforce at the center 
of its metrics and making sure that individuals have access to training and have access to that job post the training. What are the barriers that give you the most pause in making all of that a reality? Data, support, whether it's state or federal. I mean, what, what could really make that happen? That, that coordination that has been so elusive, these are not new struggles took a pandemic for us to see how, how bad it was. And again, I, and I'm not just saying this, I think Miami-Dade is ahead of the curve on these sort of relationships, but they're probably not where you'd like to be. And I'm wondering what needs to happen to get there. The students we serve are balancing life and work, right? So I would say, you know, what stands in the way potentially of a student coming back or finishing that credential is they have to hang on to the job that they have because they're helping provide for their families. And I think that's earn to learn programs are important. Those stipends that we've been able to with the federal stimulus dollars help students, the financial incentive programs, those are all, I think, opportunities that help remove those barriers of someone who is balancing life and taking care of children or parents or working while they're studying be able to dedicate that time that they might need to finish that credential, earn it, and then go into that next job. And I think those are some of the barriers. And the other part that I believe is just how we do support of students. More and more, we're going to need to be, you know, in demand and on-demand support of students. Sometimes we've been passive. A student starts to struggle and then we're coming in. You know, how do we use data? How do we leverage our own AI and analytics to help a student get that support that they need to continue on. So I think that's going to be upon us on how we redesign that student experience. I call it here on our team, how do we create the Uber of education that's personalized, that's on demand, and has uh, multiple entry and exit points that create that seamless beginning to end. I like that. That's sticky. I can remember that. When I was just hearing you, I was thinking about how decision makers, policy makers, folks in the media, I think we have all learned a lot about the time demands, some of those barriers that your students deal with every day. You know, I feel like the pandemic brought those to more light, to more kind of bright, shining focus for us all to think about. Are you seeing more sophistication among policymakers and others on how to, to factor that in to policy solutions? I mean, are these durable lessons that we can take away from the pandemic? I think so. I, I really believe, as I said earlier, talent is the new economic development currency. And I think there's not a legislator or a policymaker that isn't focused on economic development. It's how communities thrive. It's how states thrive. And you can't do that without having a talented workforce. And I also think that what the pandemic did is just, again, accelerate the future of work, accelerate automation and technology. And so now you couple those things together, that talent is an economic driver. And how do you accelerate talent into the workforce? It begins to really shape this alignment of degrees that lead to jobs and jobs that lead to, you know, livable and life-sustaining wages and how that all together makes up that ecosystem of economic development and of, of thriving communities and communities that have paths to prosperity. 
Well, we'll leave it there, Madeline. I know we, we've barely scratched the surface, but I hope we can keep in touch. It's going to be an interesting year in Miami-Dade and the rest of the country. But keep up the good work and, and thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Next up is Marsha Ballinger, president of Lorraine County Community College. I'm speaking with President Marcia Ballinger of Lorraine County Community College in Ohio. Thanks so much for being with me. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to join you today. What an interesting 16 months for anyone in this space or frankly, anyone in the world. I know this is an almost impossible question to ask, but can you just recap the crisis and your college and your community and how you all coped and where things kind of stand right now? Sure. When Ohio shut down 16 months ago and Lorain County Community College was a week before spring break. And so from a timing perspective, it, it worked out well that we were able to very quickly not only shut down campus, but to convert the remaining classes that we did not have online. We were a front runner in ha- already having an Associate of Arts and Associate of Science degree online, but that didn't mean that all of our courses were online. So our faculty did everything that was humanly possible to convert the remaining courses. But in addition to that, Paul, I think what was really extraordinary and has continued to serve us well throughout the past 16 months and will be part of our new plan going forward is how we intensified the wraparound services for students and accelerated our emergency aid as well as assistance like our food pantry. Ironically, as timing would have it, we opened up what we call our ARC, which is the Advocacy Resource Center, modeled after the wildly successful Amarillo College Advocacy Resource Center. And we opened that several months before the pandemic began, as if we knew there was a pandemic on the horizon. And it has been probably one of the greatest game changers for us throughout this time. And it really responds to those unique needs that our community college students have. We're a microcosm of Lorain County, where we have extremely high poverty rates in our two largest cities of Lorain and Elyria. Our female heads of households who have children under the age of 18 living in poverty hover around 40%. And so for us to address that during normal times, let alone during a pandemic, has been extremely critical for us. And so we have been able to maintain all of those services throughout the pandemic And now, as we are reaching, I think, a new inflection point and thinking about what is that new day one, we're getting ready to launch our fall semester, and we will be in person about 50% of the time, and the other 50% of the classes will be online. But a pledge that I made when the pandemic began was that no student will go without food or technology. And that pledge is going to continue as we go forward because it truly is about meeting students where they are. And listening and learning to our students throughout the pandemic has been so important. And we've been doing that throughout all of our interactions. And I I host with students every other week coffee chats online so that I can hear personally from them their stories. And I ask them the question, if you were the president of Lorain County Community College, what advice 
would you have? And how would you be designing that student experience to ensure your success? I would love to sit in on those conversations. You know, related to that, um, and, and I want to get to the resources it takes to do some of the interventions you, you began, fortunately, before this crisis hit. But I'll get into the mood of folks that you're serving. Obviously, there are enrollment challenges around the country. There's a disconnection of recent graduates from high school, but adults who are stretched in 10 different directions. And I think one of the drivers of this disconnection that we're seeing more and more evidence to support is just the emotional side of uncertainty. People are rethinking their lives, their careers, everything, and that includes you and me. What is the mood of the students that you speak with and ask those open-ended questions about this moment in time? It has been extremely, I would say, caring and positive while while mental health issues and I think that uncertainty that you describe has been front and center as well, that grit and perseverance that I think are hallmarks of community college students, we see that coming through now more than ever. We had a commencement ceremony last Saturday and it was virtual for part of it, but then I hosted an in-person stage crossing, if you will, where I presented their diploma to them and they could bring two family members. It was different from every other commencement that we've had because it didn't have the fast paced nature to it. I stayed there for four hours and had about 300 students come, which is a fraction of the number that we typically have. But what I was able to do was talk to each graduate coming across that stage. And for some of them, we talked three or four minutes and listening to every single one of them share some comments with me. The one takeaway that I have is that they all felt supported and they were all committed. And I believe that they leaned in hard during the pandemic because they knew that they needed to create a better future as they're coming out of it as well. What an intense experience that must have been and emotional as well. It really was. Good for you for doing that. So let's talk about resources here. A lot of the wraparound supports that you describe are not easy for community colleges to do. Obviously, you received some federal stimulus that I hope applied to some of that. But can you talk a little bit about how resources shook out in the last year and how much the federal aid helped and kind of where things stand on that? Yes, absolutely. The federal stimulus has been an accelerator for our students. What we found, and this we know this pre-pandemic, that when students get to a point where there's a barrier, especially getting to that finish line, it's about a $500 barrier that it's either utilities or it's a car issue or transportation or childcare or what have you. So we truly leveraged the stimulus funding, again, going back to ensuring that all students had access to technology, that they had access to food, that, you know, we could cover whatever costs that they they needed to have covered. And then we were able to leverage the federal stimulus funding with philanthropic resources. We have found that our community has stepped up in big ways at individual levels, as well as philanthropic levels. Lorraine County Community College is supported by our local taxpayers from an operational perspective. And that tax levy comes on the ballot every 10 years. 
wouldn't you know that that tax levy was on the ballot last April when the economy was starting to go south? We were in the you know throes of the early stages of the pandemic, and we were out asking our taxpayers to vote for the local funding for Lorain County Community College. We had the highest percentage of voter support than we have had in this college's history, over 60%. And I attribute that to the community recognizing and understanding the needs that they have. Our, our students are the graduates who are the first responders. Our students are the graduates who are the nurses taking care of you in the hospitals. They're the teachers. And the list just goes on. But they also know that community college, that this community college is part of the economic recovery that's needed. And then emergency resources, like we were just discussing for students, that supports what students need and to stay connected to those advisors and to have the intensive support that is needed because we are so committed to meeting students where they are, not where someone thinks they should be. Well, that's a remarkable data point, really, in the increasing concern about public perceptions of higher ed that last April, when we all remember what that felt like, or maybe maybe we don't, that, that you were able to get more support for your institution. That's pretty remarkable. So thinking about the community, how have the relationships for the, your institution shifted with employers? Uh, you know, to me, it feels like there's an urgency there that is remarkable, but I can't tell the depth on the ground of how things really changed. What's the gut check for you there? They have amplified with employers and from a couple of different perspectives, both from employers who have incumbent workers that they are trying to increase their skill level, as well as there is such a gap in what they need. And so we have doubled down on our efforts with employers and have employers at the table with us co-designing the curriculum. And we launched this past September 22 short, short-term fast-track programs in five different cluster areas. And these are all offered for free for individuals because what we were able to do was leverage local workforce dollars, state workforce dollars, and federal stimulus dollars to ensure that we were creating learn and earn models so that individuals could earn industry-recognized credentials in any of these 22 areas that we connect them to those employers in our local community who are part of the design and that can then be leveraged into a one-year technical certificate and then an associate's degree and then a bachelor's degree because our overall intent is to grow that socioeconomic ladder, if you will, for the individual. But the employers then have that ability to grow the individual within their workforce. And there have been policy changes at the state level that have been great enhancements to this that have been part of some of the stimulus funding as well. And so I think there have been lessons learned from that. And some of those have been non-credit and Ohio has not funded in the past non-credit programming. And so some of the opportunities, I believe, going forward, Paul, will be the 
ability to see how these short-term industry-recognized credential-based programs can be leveraged to build that workforce that makes us that much more competitive. Well, I'm glad you brought that initiative up. We all hear more and more the way that to make that work best for students and employers is to make sure that they ladder up to further credentialing. And that's not easy to do. And there frankly hasn't been a lot of that around the country. When you look at policies on the table right now in Washington or Columbus, potentially massive subsidies that could be used for some of these programs, how best to leverage them so that they are stackable? I think it's a whole ecosystem around it, right? So that it truly does ensure that there is that ability for that student to continue on and that it is easy for them to do. And from the employer side, navigating through that, you know, when we listen to the employers, while there are these different funding streams and different policies, navigating through it can be quite the challenge. And so what we've done as a community college, I like to describe it as we, we take the pain out of the, that needle prick, right? And so we, we're the barrier busters. We like to figure it out for them and facilitate that. So I think from a policy perspective, both at a federal level and a state level, is how can we ensure that the systems are working together so that it's not so complex that a student can't navigate it and an employer can't navigate it. We've got to put the system together so that we're designing with that end in mind. And that end in mind is two-pronged. It's for the individual to be able to go up that career ladder and to ensure that they have meaningful wages uh, for themselves and their families and be part of a greater vibrant community and that the employers have not only access to a qualified workforce, but that they grow that learner worker to ensure that they are as competitive as possible, not only for their local economy, but so that they are competitive for America. Very well said. A great point to end on. Uh, talking about reducing complexity, you just explained some of the most complex pieces in higher ed policy so succinctly. Thank you for indulging these questions, Marsha. Congratulations on getting through this challenging stretch with you, the college, and, and all the students you serve. Paul, thank you so much. Okay, now we're going to turn to our sense-making segment. Please stay tuned. I am joined here by two experts from JFF to make sense of what we've just heard. First up is Lexi Barrett, who leads JFF's policy work, and, and Lexi also served in the Obama administration. And then David Altstadt, who leads the Policy Leadership Trust and focuses on federal and state policy. So let's start with Lexi. Any kind of top line thoughts about what you heard? Anything jump out at you? Yeah, I mean, I think my biggest takeaway was that these are two amazing community college leaders. They're both driving impressive innovations during incredibly difficult times. But I also know that that's unfortunately not the norm, right, that we're seeing across the country, that not all colleges are thriving, not all students are thriving. There are a lot of challenges that have always been there, but new ones that have been added on during the pandemic. And that's really what brings me back, as it always does, to policy and causes me to think about how can policy clear the path for other colleges 
to do the sorts of things that we heard about happening at Miami-Dade and Lorraine. And when I think about some of the examples that they gave of how they're accomplishing these shifts and these changes and these connection points in their ecosystem, I see the connections that they're making to policy, that they're taking a federal policy, they're taking a state policy over there, and they're leveraging those in a way to meet their leadership vision for their colleges and their students. For example, you take Lorraine, where Marsha took a small state program called TechCred. She put it together with some federal stimulus dollars, and she expanded high-quality short-term training programs for her students in a time when she saw that that was a tremendous need that she needed to meet. And she makes it sound super easy, but I don't think that it is. I think that really takes incredibly creative leadership, eyes on all the different moving pieces at the same time, blending and braiding, and that that is not something that we're seeing universally happening. And so the question for me, coming out of listening to those two wonderful leaders, is how can policy make this kind of work easier for all community colleges so that we're not ultimately depending on extraordinary individual leadership? Big point. Obviously, not everybody can be Miami-Dade and Lorain County, too. I mean, two colleges I write about all the time because they are exemplars of so many things in higher ed. Dave, what are some of the conditions that enable good policy, helpful policy? Anything uh, from that conversation that reflects on that point? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is something that we've thought a lot about at JFF and really in partnership with the practitioners on the ground. That's a big thing that we do at JFF is lift up the practitioner perspective in policy. And, and where we've landed is really kind of four principles that we think are fundamental of the kinds of policy conditions we need at a federal and state level that can really drive these kind of pockets of innovation and achieve scale and sustainability at the levels that we know students and our economy need. And those four kind of principles are one, right? We need policy that breaks down the silos, that intentionally looks to integrate and coordinate systems. And so it takes some of the, the puzzle work and the hard work that we see the practitioners doing out of the, you know, the massive the, the equation there where they don't have to figure out how to get all these systems to talk. Our policy is helping with that. Two, we need policy that is driving uh, toward implementation and scale of what we know what works, evidence-based practices, right? We don't have to reinvent the wheel and we don't need every institution organization figuring it out. We know what works and we should be uh, setting policy and funding those efforts. And we need policy that kind of also catalyzes innovation, that in really encourages those sort of front runners to keep propelling the field forward. And this has all got to be in service of two fundamental things. And this is true to JFF's mission. One, all this policy needs to be set up to close equity gaps and to do so in a way that drives upward mobility for all of the learners and workers that need our help in the country now more than ever. So that's that's those are the conditions that we think about at JFF and the way that what we see is so necessary going forward. Well, it looks like there's a good chance we'll be putting those principles to the test in coming weeks and months with some pretty big ticket 
funding ideas in the federal government, which I know we'll be talking about. But I think Marsha and Madeline did a great job of setting the table for this podcast. And I want to thank JFF and both of you for, for making it happen. Absolutely. We're looking forward to it. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much, Lexi. Thanks, Dave. We will catch you soon. Bye.